Welcome to the Oxford University Psychiatry Podcast Series. My name is Daniel Morn, and I've got Professor Paul Harrison with me today. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, you uh, have a very interesting research field into translational neuroscience, where you have uh, quite a broad range of uh, research areas, looking all the way from sort of lab work all the way through to potential clinical implications. And well, perhaps it would be interesting to begin by you just giving a, a broad overview of, of your of your research area. Sure. So my research uh, area originally was was in effect neuropathology. So having done my research degree in Alzheimer's, in the biology of Alzheimer's disease, I then wanted to apply the same kind of neuropathological techniques to schizophrenia, which is a notoriously difficult area. And we did a number of studies over probably a 10 or 15 year period, which I think told us some things, but increasingly it became apparent to me that the answer to really unravelling the pathophysiology of disease like schizophrenia didn't lie entirely, perhaps not even largely, in studying the brains of people who'd had the illness. And so as a result of that, over the past 10 years or so, the research has broadened to include, as you suggested, a range of other approaches and techniques, um, which in- inevitably take on away from questions about um, the-, the-, the biological correlates of our psychiatric syndromes, but get us more into understanding um, their-, their-, their treatments and their clinical implications. So that's really where the translational side is, is developed. So in a sense, when we see a clinical picture, we know that there's a whole, well, several layers of, of, of sort of understanding that, that, that get, feeds into that behaviour from um, neurotransmitters, um, from well, psychological frameworks that understand some behaviours. But you've been specifically looking at some, some of the genetic components of, of, of that behaviour. So could you tell us a bit about that? Yes, that's right. So perhaps that's been the main shift in focus. Um, so because originally we did what would in a sense are case control studies where you take a series of brains from patients with an illness and a series of brains from people without and you're looking really for things that that are the correlates of the diagnostic differences. Now the problems of those kind of studies really whether you do them in post-mortem brains or you do them in established living patients with an illness is it's very difficult to separate causes from consequences of illness. And the same in many ways applies to environmental studies of the risk factors of psychiatric illness. So one of the attractions of the genetics is not only that we know the major psychiatric syndromes have a substantial and often underestimated genetic component, but if you find genetic discoveries, essentially, they can't be confounded by anything. You may still be very puzzled as to what they mean, but at least if you find a robust genetic association with a a clinical syndrome, you you can start from that. It's it's a peg on which you can then hang on all sorts of other studies. So that's really why we've moved to understanding the genetic bases and mechanisms underlying schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Okay, thank you. So what, what do we know about these sort of very broad, uh, perhaps umbrella diagnoses of bipolar and schizophrenia? What do we know about the genetic contributions of them, just broadly speaking? Uh, well, uh, it, the glass is very much half full and half empty. The, the simple answer is we still really don't understand it at all. On the other hand, it is clear, and research over the last 10 years has really shown us this, particularly the last couple of years, Firstly, that there is this substantial genetic component. So depending how you measure it, between about two-thirds and three-quarters of whatever is causing these illnesses is in our genes. We also know that about two-thirds of the genes that contribute to schizophrenia also contribute to bipolar disorder and vice versa. And there's also an overlap genetically with autism, with learning disability and with major depression. So certainly our clinical sense that these syndromes don't really carve nature in our joints and there's, there's many cases that are a mixture of two things there's only one pure case 
of any diagnosis. That's certainly what the genetics is looking like. In terms of what is the nature of the genetic basis of these various syndromes, again, there's not one gene, there probably isn't even 100 genes. There are probably hundreds, if not thousands, of genes contributing individually small amounts to the genetic risk of these disorders. There may then be a few rarer genes, which then, if they happen to be present, or rarer genetic abnormalities, which, if they happen to be present in a given patient, may make that person's illness slightly more attributable to, to a smaller number of, of more penetrant genetic factors. So there's many genes that have um, perhaps a small impact on, on, on the risk of developing these these conditions. So, I mean, that makes your job very complex, doesn't it? Because you're looking at so many different genes... And all of, if you look at any particular one gene, then it, it, it might lead to somebody having a condition or, or not having a condition. And are, are you looking at how they associate with one another, or are you looking at them individually? Uh, well, so you're right, you've, you've, you've kind of touched upon what is really one of the key issues at the moment in research, is how do you prioritise the many genetic discoveries and implications? Because it's now quite quick to discover or to survey the genome with the Human Genome Project and the techniques that go with that. So it's very easy to identify hundreds or thousands of genes which are individually, statistically doing something. But then following those up and understanding the biological implications of that is very difficult and, and does need a lot of prioritisation. And the question is, on what kind of grounds do you prioritise and what kind of models do you have to have for what's called the genetic architecture of these conditions to help you make rational decisions about what to study? Now... Some researchers are going for these rare, very rare, but if present, very penetrant genetic factors on the grounds that that gives you contraction into the biology. Other people say, from an epidemiological perspective, that they're not important enough overall to invest in. We need to go for these common genes, and even though the effects are very small, that's ultimately where the real breakthroughs need to be made. You can then say, do I take an individual gene or do I hypothesise that these genes interact with each other? And you go for some kind of higher level um, or sometimes called points of convergence amongst these genes and you go for what you think are the biochemical pathways that may be downstream of a lot of these genes. Um, the metaphor that sometimes uses, you know, do you try and go after every, every tributary or do you go for the big river where all the tributaries have, have joined up to have a bigger effect? And again, at the moment, I think there's different people applying different strategies and it remains to be seen which, if any, is the more fruitful and comes to fruition more quickly. So a lot of exploration needs to be done about these many different genes and, and their contrib contribution towards um, what we recognise as, as psychiatric diagnoses. But I, I guess the question comes as to uh, na the nature-nurture question and, and are you doing any, any sort of investigations on, on how particular... Uh, perhaps constellations or, or, or groups of, of genes might interact with, with um, adverse uh, circumstances in people's lives? Um, well, <laughs> unfortunately, as you say, that's another level of complexity because the evidence is that many of these genes are probably not having a direct and immediate effect on disease risk. They may well be affecting individuals' responses to environmental events. Mm. And environmental events can be anything from a viral infection to smoking cannabis to having a head injury. Now, of course, experimentally, it gets even more difficult when you try and combine genetic factors with environmental factors, as you can imagine, because of the sort of combinations of things rapidly multiply beyond any uh, meaningful control. Uh, we, as a generally, have stayed away from the environmental side of things just to try and um, you know, retain a degree of focus. But 
with uh, Liz Tunbridge, who's a Royal Society Fellow here, we have been interested in the interaction of one of the particular genes with, with tetrahydrocannabinol, the active ingredient of cannabis, and exploring some of the mechanisms that may underlie the apparent association between your genetic makeup and the effect which smoking cannabis earlier in your life has on your risk of developing schizophrenia later. So that's an example of what's sometimes called a gene-environment interaction model. So the nature-nurture question remains sort of a lofty, a lofty ideal in, 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 in research uh, at that moment. It, it certainly does. The problem, as I say, is that it's now possible to measure the genome very quickly in very large numbers of people. To measure the enviro, the, the, the people's environment, to the necessary level of detail and longitudinally, not just cross-section, of course, is a far more expensive and long-term and, frankly, unfeasible operation. So I think the gene, the environment bit of the risks for psychiatric illnesses will go on being more mysterious in some ways than the genetics will be, just for that practical reason. So moving on to thinking about practical implications of, of your of your research on, on, on genetics and, and how that might apply to the clinical room, you've, you've written a bit about um, how what you've understood about the genetic contributions to mental illness might impact on, on, on our understanding of medication. So could you tell us a bit about that? Yes, so I think potentially genetics can help treatment, particularly not necessarily exclusively drug treatments in several ways. One is it, it may turn out that there are, there are genetic predictors of response to the drugs we have available at the moment, that's called pharmacogenomics. Um, and again, there are some data, but nothing which at the moment means that, in, as you in clinical practice, we routinely would measure something genetic to help us decide which drug or dose to use. But perhaps more ex- interestingly looking ahead, given that we know our current drugs have many, many limitations, is whether the genetics can help us identify new drugs or new drug targets. And on that, I think, again, it's too early to say. If you look at the, of the many genes that we have, taking schizophrenia as an example, although there are many genes, they're not independent of each other in terms of what we think those genes are doing. So there's a clear convergence of many of the genes on certain core pathways, some of which were already potential drug targets for other reasons and others which are novel. So for example, glutamate and MDA receptor signaling and synaptic plasticity seem to be common uh, effects of a number of the risk genes and strategies to try and normalise or improve glutamate transmission had already been uh, under development in the field, so one would imagine and one would hope that the genetic discoveries may both increase the focus on that and sharpen the focus to decide exactly where within what is a big signaling pathway the drugs of the next generation can be more usefully targeted. Uh, similarly, there's another focus of some of the genes across schizophrenia and bipolar disorder on calcium signaling. So calcium channel antagonists, for example, which we already have in medicine and cardiology, for example, would they have any as yet untapped potential as novel drug treatments? But whether, you know, whether that's going to prove to be the case, whether those drugs will turn out to be effective and safe and meet all the usual problems of developing new psychiatric drugs remains to be seen. But I think the genetics, at the very least, is giving the field of psychiatric drug discovery a well-needed boost. And it's helping, I think, reverse the previous decline of interest by the pharmaceutical industry in our field. We work in psychiatry using a descriptive um, diagnostic classification system where we have these, well, perhaps some, some might argue, quite old-fashioned uh, diagnoses of schizophrenia and, and bipolar and, and uh, perhaps depression and anxiety. In your, in your work of understanding 
genetics and, and how there's sort of quite a common thread of, of genetic contributions and, and, and uh, mm. sort of um, mental disorder across the spectrum. Um, do, have you had any thoughts about how, um, or, or any thoughts about our current diagnostic system? Do you think it, it needs to be shaped in light of your um, understanding of genetics? Um, well, I think like most people, I'm quite sure our current system is wrong but I'm not quite sure what at the moment I would do to make it any better. We can make it different, but we might not do it any better. Because the genetics is not deterministic, it's not like you know, a single gene disorder where you can start to redefine the syndrome by the genetic mutation, for example. It's naive to think we're ever, or certainly in the foreseeable future, ever going to get to that sort of level of redescribing our syndromes on some more biological basis. However, I think we can and will do a lot better than the current entirely descriptive form of classification. So for example, if we I mean let's say we compare psychosis as a broad category with dementia as a broad category. We still use the term dementia as a descriptive syndrome to describe see the common constellation of those symptoms, but we have individual dementias that can be defined according to their pathology and increasingly according to their genetic origins. Now I would imagine what will happen to psychosis is it will it will begin to be picked apart in that kind of way. The majority of cases will continue to be idiopathic in the causal sense for a while, and they will need to continue to be described as such. But there will be, I suspect, individual and rare causes of psychosis which become defined by their etiology. To take another very topical and controversial at the moment, the possibility that some cases of psychosis are due to anti autoantibodies, and you know, essentially an autoimmune disorder presenting as schizophrenia. Now, that raises fascinating scientific and nosological questions, um, but that's, I think, an example of where it may be that a small portion of cases become viewed differently and, of course, treated differently if, if the science or the evidence for that holds up. It's fascinating hearing you talk about potential futures of, 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 of understanding uh, in, in sort of psychiatric presentations in, in, in clinical practice and how your work has informed that. I, in speaking to you, it's it's, it's it's clear to me that your 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 research is um, uh, is very it informs your practice, even though it's very scientifically based. It's very almost sort of pure science. It still has an ability to it, it sort of make you think in a fresh way about about when when, when you see patients. And um, it would be just really interesting to hear how how you you feel about being an academic psychiatrist. What do you think? It brings brings to your professional life, and, and what would you say to potentially aspiring academic psychiatrists? Well, I, I I love the combination. I think it's a real privilege to both be a doctor, a clinician, and sort of have all the um, I guess the trappings that go with that, whilst also having the academic freedom to pursue what, what to me are interesting and challenging intellectual problems. Um, and of course, the promise that in the end something might make a difference to somebody if it's in the long term future and my, my contribution has been minor, I think at least feeling that does help you get up in the morning and feel motivated to, to go on um, working in both domains. So I would encourage anybody who's interested either in the psychiatry or in my case in the neuroscience, the combination really is very rewarding. Um, and, and there are still, despite the difficulties in funding, both on the clinical and the research side, there are still real opportunities. So if you're bright enough and hard-working enough, you know, I would, I would certainly be dogged in your pursuit of, of that. Um, in terms of career advice, again, I would encourage young people to, 
to read around, to look around, to ask around, to meet people. In my, my own personal experience is that, and it certainly worked for me, finding a person or a field that inspires you, particularly I think a person who really can uh, get you onto the right starting point for your career and then goes on inspiring you. And I've had the privilege to work with a number of really inspiring people throughout my career. And I think that's my, my biggest advice, be inspired. Professor Paul Harrison, it's been great to speak to you this morning. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure, thank you. And thank you for tuning in to the Oxford University Psychiatry Podcast Series. We hope you listen to some more. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>